You got your Bibles? Go ahead and find your place in Ezra. Ezra chapter 4. We're going to continue our study, the ultimate fixer-upper. Thank you for standing as uh, we're actually drawing closer and closer when we get into Nehemiah chapter 8 in our study this summer of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we'll see that the uh, people stood when they had the book of the law open for the first time in a long time and uh, kind of set a precedent the people of God would stand in honor of reading God's word. So thank you for standing as we open the book together. I'm just going to read uh, a few verses from chapter 4 to kind of get us started, verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at a lot of what's happening in the storyline from Ezra 4, 5, and 6. So if you found your place, Ezra chapter 4, it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the leaders of the families and said to them, let us build with you, for we also worship your God. That was only a partial truth, by the way. And have been sacrificing to him since the time of King Azarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and other leaders of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone must build it for the Lord understanding there, we alone must build it for the Lord alone is the way this is, is worded there. Uh, the God of Israel. That can't be mixed with all the other gods that you're worshiping. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius or Darius of Persia. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn a little bit from your word about what it means to lead out with integrity and persistence, what it means to not be distracted by the opposition and keep our eyes on the calling you have on our life. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the word of God and use it to instruct us on how to live our lives personally, how to lead our homes, and how to live as the body of Christ, the church, in a contrary world where we will often face opposition. Lord, empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The title of the message this morning is, It's Never Easy. <laughs> it's Never Easy. God certainly awards persistence. You know, about 1,400 years ago, a group of uh, primitive folks, I guess everybody was primitive 1,400 years ago, observed the flight of particular birds north at a certain time where they said, you know, there, there must be something up there because those, those birds migrate away from us. And then they always come back. Where are those birds headed? And so these, these Polynesians begin... And by saying Polynesians, you, you know probably where the birds were headed. But they begin to try to build better paddle boats and, and try to make their way north in the ocean waters as far as they possibly could to see where these birds were going. They persisted. They would get so far and they would come back. They would build better paddle boats. They would go as far as they think they could go and still make it back. And eventually, after 400 years of following these migrating birds, it was a type of plover. It was a golden plover was the name of the bird. But... After about 400 years, and 
This was about a thousand years ago. These Polynesians finally came up on the most isolated islands in the Pacific, thousands of miles from any other landmass known as today the Hawaiian Islands. Now, we look at that and we say 400 years. As a matter of fact, later discoveries made people uh, really amazed that anybody before modern technology discovered these islands at all. But they had followed the kind of clues that I guess God had given them with the birds and the, the, the flight patterns, and they stayed with it, and ultimately through staying with it, overcoming all kinds of opposition, they discovered what many believe are the most beautiful islands. And if you can imagine getting there before people got there, <laughs> before any other human beings had set foot on those islands. If you could imagine that discovery, what it must have been like when they came upon that beautiful place. You know, as we look at the coming back from Babylon here, it took a lot of effort. It took a lot of staying with it. They were looking over a 400-year period. A 400-year period that after the Old Testament would be closed, after the final story about the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, the stories that we read in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, after the, the, the prophecies of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were all closed, there would be 400 years that they had been seeking, looking for clues, preparing for a day that Messiah, Jesus, would be born that beautiful. But they had to stay with it. They were preparing for something. They were following the word that God was giving them for something more beautiful than any land that we would ever discover kingdom in the world. It, it was a Messiah who would ultimately usher in an eternal kingdom and establish his kingdom in the hearts and lives of all of us. There's no way those original Polynesians could have ever dreamed what they would discover. There's no way that we could ever dream. The Bible says, I have not seen, ear have not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him, that if we will do like we saw in the first chapter, begin to dream again. And then after dreaming again, we'll get started, we'll have some initiative and in that we won't forget that God's called us to something bigger than anything this world has to offer. Anything, uh, God has called us to something more precious than anything our eyes have ever seen before, even in this life, not to mention eternity. We begin to dream again, we get started we lay that foundation like we saw last week. When that all begins to take place, we're going to learn that it's never easy. We're going to learn at that point that there's going to be opposition. There's going to be waves that are contrary. There are going to be things that come against what you believe God's calling you to do. You're going to discover that if you try to live in this world as a family, like Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You make that commitment as a family, you're going to face an enemy. You're going to face not only a world that is contrary, but the devil himself who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And then when a church gets a vision, when a church begins to dream, and a church says God's got something for us that's exciting, that eyes not seen, ears not heard, we want to get in on what God's doing, and we begin to have a missional vision to touch the neighbors and the nations and the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you better believe the devil doesn't like it 
when a church begins to experience that kind of revival and see the hand of God at work, and the devil's going to come against everything that the church is trying to accomplish. And so we see in Ezra that there was an opposition that they came up against. And let's be reminded that in the, the New Testament, believers, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we're told that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers of this present dark world, demonic spirits even. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. However, we also have to keep in mind that while it's ultimately the devil that comes against us, the reason Paul had to say that is because he did not want those Ephesian believers to think that it was the people who were coming against them that were the root of the problem. Ultimately, the devil, the enemy, was using people. And so while at the same time we recognize, hey, people are our enemies, that when the devil brings opposition into our lives, he also does so through people, and we need to pray for them and ultimately realize it's a spiritual attack that we're facing, the world, the flesh, and the devil that's coming against us. But that did not keep Jesus from rebuking Peter. Remember when Peter tried to convince Christ that he would never go to a cross? Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> so he recognized his battle was against Satan, but he knew at that point Satan was using Peter. You see poor old Peter get confronted again. The, this great pastor in the New Testament church, this great evangelist who saw 3,000 people saved at Pentecost. The apostle Paul had to go confront Peter to his face because he was embracing uh, some doctrine, some theology that uh, was legalistic in its nature. And Paul said, you know, I had to go straighten Peter out a little bit. So he saw that the enemy would certainly use people, even church people, even godly people at times, when they get their eyes off of an understanding of God's word. And so unbelievers were also warned in Scripture and Nations that were outside of Israel were often rebuked again and again. You have pagans like Simon the sorcerer, who was told that he had the wrong motives. You have Gamaliel rebuking the religious Jews, warning them that, man, when you stand against the church, you better be careful. You might be fighting against God himself. And so while we recognize that it's the enemy, it's not flesh and blood that's ultimately attacking us that's the opposition we also have to recognize that sometimes the enemy will use people with skin on them and while they're not the enemy and God loves them we have to recognize the tactics of the opposition and how we might use them and while we love them we have to come against some of the things that the opposition brings into our lives so as we break down the strategy of the opposition we'll follow that up this morning by looking at the secret overcomer I don't want it to sound like all bad news I don't want it to sound like, I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking, man, there's a war out there, and I don't know if I really want to embrace the call of God on my life. I don't know if I really want to walk according to the Word of God, because, man, if, if I do that, ooh, the devil's going to come after me, and I'm not ready for all of that. And we'll look at his strategy, the strategy of the opposition, but then we'll look at the secret of the overcomers. Let's break down the strategy of the opposition at first. First of all, I want you to notice that what they began to do in those first verses that we looked at was what we will call frustrating antagonism. 
Anybody have any frustrating antagonism in your life? Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but sometimes it can come through the form of family members. And from the time you were little, you know that you know, God placed brothers and sisters in your life to be frustrating antagonists at times, right? Just to get on your nerves maybe a little bit. Um, maybe people you go to school with, you may have somebody in your workplace that you would say, they are powers and principalities. God may use people and the enemy may use people in your life. And there's a certain frustrating antagonism. As we read those first three verses, the Assyrians who were in that region, remember uh, before the southern kingdom was taken captivity to Babylon, the northern kingdom was taken uh, by the Assyrians and there had become this mixed group both through intermarriage and also through uh, mixing of their religions. And they worshipped, they were polytheistic, they worshipped all of these pagan gods, but just to make sure they were like that guy who was uh, in the army during one of the wars and somebody saw him and he had like a, he had a star of David and he had a cross and he had a Muslim crescent and he had all of these different religious images and somebody said, what's the deal with you? And he said, man, over here I can't afford to be wrong. Well, he was wrong because he had embraced all of the religions and God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so when they come, it says they were known as the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, but they see something exciting happening, and now all of a sudden they want to be a part of that, this part of building Zerubbabel's temple there. And they say, let us build with you. And they're like, wait a minute, we're not mixing faiths here. You can't just make this one of your many shrines, and this is for the people who worship Yahweh alone, so just kind of let us keep doing what we're doing. So they got upset about that, and they begin to bribe officials. They begin to come against them. They begin, it says in verse 5, to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus until the reign of King Darius, and we see that during both these periods, and there's some things that are said in the next couple of chapters that kind of overlap with Nehemiah as well. But they begin to be that thorn in the flesh. They begin to try to frustrate them, slow their efforts down. But Israel was faithful to say, look, you're not about what we're about. Your mixing of this with all kinds of other things is, is not what we're trying to accomplish here in building a temple to the one true and living God. Warning that the church should be careful about asking the government or the world to help us accomplish the mission God has called us to. Why is it so frustrating when it sounds like somebody in the world or somebody who is kind of caught up in, in serving a lot of false religions when all of a sudden they say, hey, but, but let us get in on what you're doing. And there are a lot of people in the church today that will say, come on, if they want to help, let them help. If the community wants to get involved, let the community get involved. If the world wants to get involved, let the world get involved. There won't be any strings attached, and we're thinking, yeah, right. If the government wants to help out, just, just let them help the church out a little bit. Well, first of all, I usually respond to that by saying, God's big and powerful and awesome, and he really doesn't need any help from the government. But listen, here's, here's some of the things we had to keep in mind. What they were doing or wanted to do could have sabotaged their efforts later. They could have infiltrated their presence and sabotaged everything they were trying to accomplish for the glory of God. Also, it could have given them false hope in that, hey, I'm serving the Lord here. 
A lot of you know, it's been my policy ever since I became pastor here. Actually, it was a policy I developed as a youth minister a long time ago. But like when it comes to fundraisers or doing something great for the glory of God, it's always been my policy that the church not be seen out there asking the world to help pay the church's bills. That we're not out there asking people who don't know the Lord in the community and everywhere else. We're not, we're not writing letters to government officials and everybody else saying, hey, we got a, a fundraiser going on down here at the church. You need to get involved. One of the things, one of the problems that could have taken place here had they allowed this to happen is it could have given them false hope that they were okay with God while they had all of these mixed beliefs. And they weren't okay with God. And sometimes what we do with our churches by allowing people to participate who aren't part of the kingdom, who, who aren't true worshipers of the living God, is that sometimes they have false hope that, hey, because I gave to the Salvation Army or because I invested in that church, um, God's got to be all right with me. I gave at the office, so to speak. And then finally, it always compromises the integrity of the work, especially sacred work, the work that God Uh, describes in his word as, hey, this is something that's got to be done by God's people, and it's got to be done God's way, and it's got to be done in God's power. And those who don't know God do not have the power of God to even get along with the people of God. And so they said, hey, listen, you you, you won't let us be a part. We're going to frustrate your efforts here. We're going to come against what you're doing. So verses 4 and 5 kind of reveal their selfish motives to begin with. Okay, if we can't be a part of it, if it can't be something we can get our hands on and our hands in, then we're going to kind of mess you up along the way. Frustrating antagonism. It kind of, it's that mentality that says, okay, if I can't be a star in this show, then let me see if I can wreck the show for everybody else. Let me see if I can mess it up for everybody else. So this was kind of the, their mentality. And when they were not allowed to be a part, all of a sudden their true motives were revealed in the frustrating antagonism that came against the people of Israel. That was followed by the second tactic here, not only frustrating antagonism, but what we'll call false accusation. The people who were already in the land wrote an accusation against the residents of Judah and Jerusalem. And they're going to write Artaxerxes. Later you'll see a letter that goes to Darius as well. But they begin to make all of these false accusations. They were trying to cast doubt on the vision. They were trying to cast doubt on what authority they had to even be doing this. And then, again, on their own motives, they were saying, listen, don't don't trust them. Don't trust those Jews. They were telling everybody else, you, you can't trust them. They will do you wrong in a heartbeat. They wrote letters to Artaxerxes, letters to Darius using words like, those rebels, you let them build, they'll hate you for it later. We're told that we have an accuser as well. You know, 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be alert, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour church the devil is real and when you get a vision from God and you begin to want to do something great for him you better be assured he's going to begin to accuse you revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 said that he is the accuser of the brethren 
He's the one that will whisper in your ear, you're not really saved, you're not worth anything, you can't do anything important for the kingdom of God, you can't do anything for the glory of God, you're a nobody, you're nothing, you might as well sit still and sit back and leave it alone. So he begins to come and bring accusations in our own lives. Now we also read in the next verse in Revelation chapter 12, that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, the devil is called the father of lies. So this accuser of the brethren is going to try to cast doubt on God's word. He's going to try to get you to doubt visionary spiritual leadership that God places in your life and say, well, we can't trust God, we can't trust his word, or we can't trust the spiritual leaders that he has placed in our lives that's what the enemy is whispering that's his accusations on your salvation on your calling on your vision saying no you're not qualified no you don't have the authority no you can't do it and then that leads to this final last ditch effort we'll call the fierce attacks it went from frustration to false accusation to now the enemy is going to begin to uh, step it up a notch with some fierce attacks. They begin to, to try to create all kinds of red tape, all kinds of loopholes, and they ultimately stopped the work for a little while. If you'll, After sending these letters and after their attacks, look at verse 23. As soon as the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read to Rahim, Shemshah, the scribe, their colleagues, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forced. Now the attack became more fierce. You're going to stop at this moment. And the authorities came and stopped the work. The construction, verse 24, of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of King Darius of Persia. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But look at what they finally did is they, they brought in and forcibly stopped the work that was taking place using fear, using intimidation, using accusations, sending these letters, doing everything they could to come against the work that God was doing. And the enemy himself, the devil himself, will use fear and intimidation. And his goal, if you find yourself in some kind of sinful bondage, if you find yourself in some kind of situation today where you've got spiritual apathy in your life. It's not just to bring you down. What the enemy is ultimately trying to do is he's trying to stop the work of God. He wants to stop the work of God in your life. He wants to stop God's work in your family. He wants to stop God's work at Trinity Baptist Church. You better believe as we get a vision and we begin to hear from God, And God begins to say, here's how you can make a difference in your community. And God says, here's how you can make a difference in the lives of the next generation. Exciting things begin to happen. You get reports like we did from Camp Maranatha this morning or from our kids' camp this summer there. All those things that God's doing, the accusations begin to come in. The devil's going to come against it. And he's going to come and he's going to say, you can't trust God. And you can't trust his word. And you can't trust his leaders. And his goal is to render you inactive in the process. And it's fierce. And those who are in leadership, whether you're a pastor or a staff member or a leader in a life group, a leader in a WANA, 
a leader in a very, one of the many vibrant ministries in our church, all of a sudden it's going to seem like you've got a gauntlet to run through just to do what God's called you to do. Anybody ever been there? Like, I know God's called me to do this, but if he's calling me to do this, it should be easy, right? Not so. Not so. Now, I get it. Sometimes we try to do things in the flesh instead of do things in the power of his Holy Spirit. But even if we're being obedient to him, walking with God, walking in the power of the Spirit, we still feel like sometimes we're going through this gauntlet of attacks. When, when I was in uh, high school, and I, I remember uh, every Monday night, I, still th- I think they still do this to this day, but every Monday night we had FCA meetings, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Now, some of the games we played back then would probably be called hazing today and you couldn't get away with them. But some of the games we did back then in the, in the 80s, man, they, they were rough. We, did a, we actually played a game called the gauntlet. And uh, we would take, and this was, again, this would be hazing. You'd probably get fired if you were to do this game today as a leader. But, but we would take a string and we would tie a balloon that was hanging just over, a string around our waist, balloon hanging just over our rear end. And we would have a gauntlet of people, to, a, a line on the left, a line on the right. And they had rolled up magazines. And the goal was for you to get through that gauntlet without seeing, but make the balloon being popped. And the best way to pop the balloon was to not only hit it with the magazine, but make sure that you pinned it against their backside, their lower back, or somewhere, and pop that balloon. Now, that doesn't sound like cruel and unusual punishment. That's hazing. Man, if my kid went to a meeting like, well, this was the 80s, and so we didn't you know, worry about stuff like that back then. We could be kids and have fun and hurt people and stuff like that, so... <laughs> And so, man, I remember thinking, oh, they're not going to pop my balloon, man. And you try to cheat and tie that a little bit, let it hang a little bit more, let it fly in the wind a little bit more so they couldn't pin it. You know, and somebody would say, no, 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 that thing's got to be tight up against your back, man. And you'd run through that gauntlet and you'd hope that, man, you know, because we were at FCA, everybody there was competitive, right? And we, we were so competitive, don't want them to pop my balloon. And sometimes when you're in the church and you're in a place of ministry leadership or you're in a home, you're a dad, you're a mom, you're trying to do things for the glory of God, you get a vision, you get excited in order to make that happen. Sometimes you just feel like, man, the enemy's coming at me and everybody's trying to bust my vision. Everybody's trying to pop my balloon and they're trying to inflict some pain on me in the process. That's what was happening. The, the, the attacks had become fierce and they're like, good night, we're trying to do something for the Lord here, the one true God of Israel. Didn't know there would be so much opposition from just wanting to do something for the glory of God. We're told also in John 10, 10, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he wants to kill, steal, and destroy your vision, your family. He wants to come against this church. And I'm telling you, while we believe that God is real and God is sovereign, we need to keep in mind that the enemy is real and he has an attack and we need to hit our face. We need to be more involved in spiritual warfare than ever before because the demonic powers want to use even people in our own lives to come against what God wants to do. And we've got to get on our face before Almighty God and and put on that spiritual armor, tighten that belt of truth, be sure that helmet of salvation is secure. Most of us have it kind of flopping around, kind of like Toby's first football helmet when he was a kid. Our helmet of salvation is kind of 
flopping around on us and we need to get that helmet on tight and know what we believe, why we believe it, stand our ground on the Word of God and not be shaken because we're in a battle against the enemy. And we need to pray like never before that God would give us victory because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We can experience victory, but we're going to have some fierce attacks. Now, what's the secret? What's the secret of the overcomer? We see the strategy of the opposition. There's going to be these false accusations. There's going to be fierce attacks in our life. But what's the secret of the overcomer? First of all, I want you to see that they had the inspiration of the prophet of God. That, that shows the preparation of the Word of God in all that they were doing. They were holding to the Word of God, but they had the inspirations of the prophets of God. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. When the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, and in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedot, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them. They were helping them out. Look at chapter 6 in verse 14. So, so the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying, the preaching here of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, son of Edu. They Finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel, the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes of Persia. They had the inspiration of the prophets of God, the prophets who were willing to stand and say, Thus saith the Lord. And Haggai, if you want to flip over in your Bible, hold your place there in Ezra. But the last, second to the last and third to the last books of the New Testament, Haggai and Zechariah. Turn to Haggai first. You get a kind of a, a summation of his preaching. What was he saying that inspired them? What was he saying that, that kind of fired them up there? In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozadok, the, the high priest. And he said, the Lord of hosts says this, thus saith the Lord, Right? The Lord of hosts says this, these people are saying the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet, and he said, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your own paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Haggai began to say, listen, are you seeking first your own kingdom? You're taking care of your dwelling? Your house looks pretty good? Your place is in order? but you're neglecting the house of God? Is that the way it's supposed to be? So here comes Haggai saying, no, it's time to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's time to be on mission for the glory of God, giving everything you can for the cause of the kingdom to a people who were tempted to begin to be after their own glory. And then Zechariah. Over with me. After Haggai to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. Verses 8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have 
laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who scorns the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout, and that was a reference to the, the, the Holy Spirit's work, the omnipresence of God in the world. And he said, the whole earth, throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the plumb line of Zerubbabel's hand. Verse 6, what, the reason he was able to say that, verse 6 in chapter 4 says, this is the word of the Lord of Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What was Zechariah's message that so inspired them? He says, here's what the word of the Lord says. He says, don't look at anything as a small thing. Because all these small things are coming together as something beautiful. And you need to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit doing what God's called you to do, no matter how small those small things tend to be. Because in all of these works, I'm doing something great. Sometimes when we're serving the Lord, we might look at something in our home as, well, I'm just doing the laundry today. (laughs) Not a big day. I'm not doing anything exciting today. I'm just washing the dishes for mama, like she said. Nothing exciting. I'm in the house of God. I'm, I'm just keeping nursery today. I'm kind of working beside, behind the scenes. I'm teaching this class. I'm serving on a committee that not a lot of people know that even exists in the church. And Zechariah was saying, listen, there are no small things. Everything is valuable for the vision that I've given here for the completion of the temple them as he preached the word of lord he inspired them to keep on keeping on for the glory of god and so they had the inspiration of the prophets of god who were preaching the word of god saying thus saith the lord and then you have the integrity of the people of god when we go back to chapter 6 verses 1 through 3 in ezra king darius gave the order this is when that he darius had received this second letter saying hey Check this out. Are they really doing what they're supposed to be doing? They're rebuilding this temple, those who were trying to frustrate the plans. Darius gave the order. They searched in the library of Babylon and the archives. But it was in the fortress of Ekmatana in the province of Media that a scroll was found with this record written on it. In the first year of King Cyrus, he issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be built as a place for offering sacrifices and let its original foundations be retained. And it begins to describe the height and the measurements and everything that was involved in rebuilding the temple. In other words, Darius is like, wait a minute, the Jews are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Why are we trying to stop them? They were doing, first of all, what the God Most High had called them to do And then God had even convinced, you go all the way way back through Daniel's influence, God had convinced even the governors of the land, because the king's hand ultimately has to be in the heart of God, he had even convinced them under his sovereignty to be about this business. They were a people of integrity at this point. They had learned their lessons, and now they were set out to do what God had called them to do. You know, Peter tells us in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, listen, if people are going to bring accusations against you, if people are going to attack you, if people are going to come against you, at least, at least let it be for doing the right thing. 
You're going to face opposition in the world. So when they attack you, let it be for righteousness sake. Let them come against you because you were found doing what you were supposed to be doing. Much like Daniel when he was praying when they had made it illegal to pray. He was doing what God had called him to do. And so their integrity preserved them during this time. You have the inspiration of the preaching of God's word. You have the integrity of the people of God. And as we walk with God, one thing I remember my mentor, Dr. Bill Bennett, told me many years ago, he said, you walk so close to God and you keep yourself clean. You pray, you know the word of God and you know the God of the word. And as you know this book and you stay in this book and you walk with God and you keep yourself clean and holy, there will be people who will be afraid to come against you. There will be people afraid to stand against your leadership because they know they don't know the book and they know they don't know the God of the word. And that was beginning to happen. Wait a minute, these people know the Lord. These people are walking with God. We better back up. When Israel honored God and when they walked with him and they lived a life of integrity and they didn't get caught up in all of the distractions around them, God honored them and those in leadership, even outside the faith, began to respect them. And finally, you see the intervention of the purposes of God. In other words, God's got a plan that can't be defiled by the attacks of the enemy. You see the intervention of the purpose of God, God's power that was accomplishing God's purpose. Remember what Zechariah was preaching? Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, what I get done, I'm going to get it done my way with my people. And so God's plans were being accomplished here. Remember what he had prophesied even before the exile. Remember what Jeremiah had said? I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for you to prosper All of that was a reference to when they would come back and they would rebuild. God had a a plan even in their exile to get them to a right relationship with him and then bring them back into the land. And so we see the intervention of God's plans and God's purposes right here. In chapter 6, look at verses 16 through 22. Then the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of God's house, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, as well as 12 male goats as a sin offering for all Israel. They were genuine. They were making their hearts right with God. They were broken over the sins of their past and the sins of their nation. They weren't saying, hey, but God, that was the generation before us. That's not our fault. They were saying, we'll be proactive, we'll take responsibility for even the sins of our households and and our ancestors. They also appointed the priests by their divisions, the Levites by their groups to the service of God in Jerusalem according to what was written in the book of Moses. Now they wanted to get it right, now they wanted to do everything by the book, by the word of God, and so they're going by that. Then the exiles observed Passover on the 14th day, at the first month. Now, what's the big deal about observing Passover? Remember how the return from Babylon would so many ways parallel the exodus out of Egypt when they left Egypt? Remember how they left Egypt? Remember the ten plagues and the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn and that's when Passover was established because they would take that spotless lamb, that lamb without spot, or blemish, they would sacrifice that lamb, they would put the blood on the 
uh, doorposts and the lintel, and, the, and the, it kind of pictured like a cross there. It was a foreshadowing of Christ being the ultimate Passover lamb. They would celebrate Passover all to remind them that the way they got out of Egypt wasn't by might or power, except for the power of God, the Spirit of God, that God was at work. And they were reminding themselves here, listen, our coming back into the land and our rebuilding this temple isn't because of who we are, but because of who he is. He's done great things in our midst. He is a powerful God, and he wants to use us powerfully. So we have this entire Passover celebration. You look down at verse 22, they observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. Syrian king's attitude toward them so that he supported them in the work on the house of the Lord God of Israel. God was giving them favor with the people around them, and God made them. They didn't just decide one day, hey, I think I'll be happy today. It says God made them joyful, showing what only he could do. It was all because they said, we've got to get back to doing this. If we're going to get victory over the opposition, the, the preachers were coming along saying, hey, here's the word of the Lord. And you've got to be integrity and people of integrity and live according to the word of the Lord. And because of the inspiration of the preaching, they knew the word. They were now living it out. They were, they were living in the integrity of the word, being obedient to it. And so God comes in with his power, with a faithful people saying, I'm going to use my people to do my work my way. And all of a sudden, they weren't just naturally doing what God called them to do. They were supernaturally doing what God called them to do. If I were to ask somebody here this morning, if you knew a man by the name of Frank Fiegel, anybody know who that is? He had a nickname, Rocky. I don't know why his nickname was Rocky, but Frank Eagle was a, a former, he was a veteran sailor in the 1920s, the U.S. Navy. He had one eye and he smoked a pipe. You know the cartoon character he inspired, I bet. One eye and he smoked a pipe. He inspired a cartoon character by the name of Papa. Yeah. Elsie Sanders was inspired by this individual to write into his cartoons and eventually make him the main character of a cartoon known as Papa. Papa had a nemesis, didn't he? Uh, he, he had a girlfriend. We all know Olive Oil. But he had a nemesis, Bluto, right? The, the earlier one's Bluto, he later became known as Brutus. But he had a nemesis, and he was always trying to cause problems. And, and Popeye didn't look like much. He, he didn't act like much. But then when he had his spinach, <laughs> when, when he opened, I couldn't wait. I, would, I remember I, on weekends, a lot of times I'd be at my, my, my grandma and grandpa Brown's house and you know, back when you only got three or four channels. But one of the cartoons that was going to come on early on a Sunday morning was Popeye. And I remember watching those old cartoons come on, and I couldn't wait, man. I'm like, come on, Popeye. You can whip this guy. I know he's got olive oil by the neck, and I know it looks bad, but you can whip this guy, man. Get after it. But you got to open the can of spinach. During the Great Depression, you realize that who knows how many lives <laughs> this cartoon saved. During the Great Depression... There was like a 35% increase in children who ate spinach because of the influence of a cartoon called Popeye. Because you know what happened when he turned that can of spinach up, right? 
Man, those arms begin to bulge, you know, and that belt tightened, that chest popped out. Popeye was ready to get after it. He'd whoop old Brutus. He'd get the best of it. Every show, I was telling the guys the other day, I hate these shows that come on TV now that take you like three years to figure out how it's going to end. I wanted it at the end every half hour. Popeye taught me that. At the end of the half hour, it was over, and Popeye was on top of things. Well, I wish I could tell you this morning that when the enemy comes against you, just open a cabinet somewhere and grab a can of spinach and pop it Actually, I don't wish I could tell you that. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that. But I can tell you as Christians, we act so anemic. And we act like, man, the enemy's getting the best of me today. Boy, the devil's whooping me. Why is he on my back? And God says, look, it's not a can of spinach you need to open. It's this book you need. You need to open my word. And you need to open up your heart to the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you begin to live according to the word of God, and do battle because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God through prayer and the pulling down of strongholds, you begin to ask God for a fresh filling of His Holy Spirit and say, God, I want to be richly indwelled by You and Your Word and I'm going to do battle according to Your Word. I'm going to do what You've called me to do Your way. Then as a result of that, you'll begin to walk in victory like you've never known. You don't have to be defeated by the enemy. You have to battle him, and you have to go through the gauntlet. But you can be victorious by walking close to the Word of God and the God of the Word, being filled with the Spirit of God, doing God's work, God's way, in God's power. You can be victorious. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that you are alive and well. That while the enemy has some power, you have all power. You have even authority over the devil himself. That at the name of Jesus, even the demons have to flee. Lord Jesus, I pray we'd begin to walk according to your word. That we would get back to the building work that you've called us to do in the kingdom of God. Roll up our sleeves. Receiving your joy. Completing the calling that you've placed on our life. We might hear the well done of God when we step into eternity. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.